the constraints, the financial constraints that, you know, news organizations are operating under, they make it appealing to run more opinion stories because those are cheap. That's Jelani Cobb. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that looks at the question, can journalism help to save democracy through the lens of Watergate and January 6th, 2021. I'm really thrilled to have Jelani Cobb as my guest today. He is the Dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and he is a very esteemed writer for The New Yorker magazine one of the most thoughtful people and one of the most interesting people, I think, in journalism today, and someone who has a really excellent grasp of the historical events we're talking about, both a little bit more distant, some 50 years ago, and another that is still very much in the news today. Okay, well, welcome Jelani Cobb to American Crisis, Can Journalism Save Democracy? Uh, I don't know if we call you Dean Cobb in this setting, but I, I'm going to call you Jelani because, because I like you and you're, I think you're my friend. So uh, I would like to ask you, first of all, you know, this podcast is sort of looks at American journalism having in mind the Watergate scandal and the press's role in that, and January 6th, 2021. Because they're they're 50 years apart, and they sort of, they each have a press and government aspect to them, certainly. So would you say, off the top of your head, that we have a weaker press now, that is in January of 2021, pretty close to now, than in the 1970s. And, you know, just talk to me a little bit about whether you think it's weaker, and if so, how, and if not, how is it different? Mm -hmm. I think we have a net weaker press than we did in the Watergate era. I think there are lots of things that have happened that have bolstered and strengthened the press uh, over the course of those decades. not the least of which is just the astounding amount of data that we have available to us now. I mean, we have things, we're capable of knowing things at a granular level that we just, we couldn't know before. Uh, Even when we think about the science of polling, you know, and how fairly primitive it was in, you know, 1970, early 1970s, where now, we know every single iteration of like anything people think um, virtually. Uh, and so there's that. Uh, the capacity to communicate with people has never been, I think, more substantial. You know, we've been enabled by a whole array of developments. You know, my late mentor, David Carr, uh, talked about how we generally walk around with more computing power in our hands, you know, with a smartphone, uh, than you know, a team of MIT computer scientists would have had uh, back in that era, and so those things are all beneficial. Now, of course, you know that's not the only direction in which things have moved. We've seen, you know, things that we, you and I have talked about, you know, the cratering of trust, uh, the evisceration of 
you know, the local news landscape, uh, the development of increasingly sophisticated means of misleading the public as opposed to informing the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, inside of all that, these real existential questions about, you know, how journalism can survive. Uh, and, you know, I think that, you know, for large institutions, large cable organizations um, still, even though, you know, they they have some problems of their own, uh, large print, if we can say, you know, print or digital print uh, publications like the New York Times and mm-hmm. so on, they exist in an entirely different landscape now. They're able to leverage and, you know, work at scale in ways that really vital medium and smaller organizations just can't. And so I think that effect probably in the bigger picture outweighs the other kind of technological developments and uh, beneficial things that have happened in that same time frame. So why is it that, you know, one of the things you mentioned, one of the things I, I think about a lot is is what's happened to trust in the press. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, it you know, right after Watergate and after the publication of the Pentagon Papers, it was very high. Um, it, it had been high and it got higher still. And then it, be, it began eventually its long and precipitous decline to, to where we are now. There was a bit of a spike during the early Trump years uh, when people felt like they really, really needed the press to inform them. But basically, it's been a, a, a downhill trajectory. What, you know, what about what was the landscape like? I know you weren't around or if you were, you were a baby uh, in the in the Watergate era. But mm-hmm. what, what, you know, give us a picture of what that was like. It was kind of a simple picture, right? Sure. Um, I mean, it was. And I, I think that probably the the best term um, to deploy in this conversation is that it was a less cynical time period. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we now... Um, you know, for one, you know, there's, you know, the, the conversation that we've had, you know, that lots of people have pointed out that, you know, local news thrives upon, you know, those actual relationships, personal relationships that exist, you know, news organizations that are, you know, vital parts of the places that they serve uh, and news that is being gathered and reported by people who live in, you know, those communities, understand those communities and so on. Uh, and so in some ways they have an advantage you know, in terms of trust. Uh, and so I should add, by the way, as an aside, the same thing has happened in medicine. You know, when we looked at COVID and we saw this proliferation of uh, misinformation and disinformation around the virus, around the vaccine, uh, around, you know, just a whole array of different things that people were saying, it seemed like every lunatic conspiracy theorist was being given the same degree of credibility as the Surgeon General or the head of the CDC. And, you know, in in the context of that, President Biden said, trust your personal physician. Ask your personal physician, you know, what he or she thinks about the virus and about the vaccine. And I said, well, that's fine, well, and good, except 100 million Americans don't have a personal physician. Uh, And so they don't have a, a primary care physician. And so it's the same kind of equivalent. That right. We've seen. Trust your local newspaper, except there's 
there's no local newspaper anymore. Bingo. Uh, right. Or maybe there is one, but it only has two reporters and it's owned by a chain and it's basically uh, a ghost of what it once was and a shadow of what it once was. So that's a right. huge, a huge factor. So, but, you know, g- kind of looking more specifically at the Watergate scandal, you know, we think of it as, oh, these two guys at the Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, broke these stories. And yes, the New York Times broke some stories and so did some others. But basically, it was the Washington Post's intrepid team and Ben Bradley. And pretty soon, politicians had to start running hearings. And pretty soon, Alexander Butterfield happened to mention that there were tapes. And then, right, you know, it was all over but the shouting at that point. Right, right. So, you know, the power structure was very much these big legacy news organizations that that really the Post, the Times, and a couple of others. So one thing I wonder is, given that huge change where we're so much more diffuse, what would happen now? Or maybe you can make a comparison to some of the things that have happened in the Trump era. What would happen now if Watergate had occurred? And I don't just mean a break-in. You know, I mean, all of this stuff. I don't think we have to wonder. You know, Carl Bernstein has said himself, he he was like, you know, this would be kind of forgotten by lunchtime, you know, because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the idea that, you know, our sensibilities, I think, have changed in such a way that the idea of what the president did or what Nixon did and, you know, what uh, Haldeman, Ehrlichman and you know, the entire infrastructure of, of, you know, the executive branch had done was shocking to the conscience. You know, it was shocking to, you know, the nation that, you know, president would authorize this kind of thing. We, we now think about just the scale of what has happened, particularly in the previous presidential administration, uh, where there was a Watergate-level scandal every day for four years, virtually, uh, it seemed. And you know, we had two impeachments and no one came to him, <laughs> you know, uh, no one, uh, you know, took the uh, Barry Goldwater route of going to the White House and saying, you know, Mr. President, along with that other group of of Republicans who, who came uh, to say, you know, Mr. President, there's no way mm-hmm. uh, that this is sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, if anything, it's the opposite. You know, even right. after, you know, fomenting... Uh, an attempted coup d'etat, essentially, uh, you know, we saw a brief moment of reflection and then back to, you know, the status quo ante. And so I don't think that Watergate would, would really make a dent in a presidential administration now. Mm-hmm. And how much of that do you think is due to or how does the right wing media or the some call it conservative media like Fox News and its would-be clones, uh, how much difference does that relatively new ecosystem make in all of this? Does it give cover? I think it makes a huge difference because, you know, what happens is that there's now always a readily available alternative story. And, you know, that alternative, and and I'm a person that thinks that, uh, you know, it's very important to have alternative stories. Uh, but this is a but not alternative available. facts. We hope exactly. 
Again, this is a readily set available uh, set of alternative facts underlying an alternative story, mm. um, which then becomes the kind of news you want, or as I have uh, called it, the phenomenon of a la carte reality, where you can just kind of pick and choose the parts of reality that you actually think are suitable to you. Uh, and as a result of that, it's difficult to have unanimity uh, or a common source of outrage or disdain. Uh, and, you know, those things get divided and metabolized in very predictable ways that everything, you know, the virus, as far as I understood, the virus was nonpartisan. <laughs> and, I think so. Yeah, you know, but uh, it was understood wildly differently, you know, along very clear partisan lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is partly because of the, the information that people are being given. Now, the other side of it, I think, is that it's very difficult in light of what we saw in the Dominion case to continue referring to uh, Fox News as a news organization. So we're talking now about the Dominion voting systems suit alleging defamation against Fox News for saying, allowing its its airwaves to carry the story that the election was rigged when they knew very well that it wasn't. That it wasn't, right. And and the the core function of a news organization being to inform the public, you know, based on verifiable, vetted information that is, you know, to the highest degree possible, uh, accurate, you know, as we know it. That's not what we saw when something, when everything is on the line of, of the many things that a democratic society does, you know, have a peaceful transfer of power is, you know, at the core of all of them. Uh, if you can't do that, you don't have a democracy. Right. We And so that leads me to a kind of a core question here, which is how concerned are you about the state of American democracy right now? You know, I think, you know, I remain very concerned about these things because um, when we talk about Joseph McCarthy, for instance, you know, a lot of people have associated this threat specifically with Donald Trump. And... You know, when we talk about Joseph McCarthy... So give us just a, t- a tad of background there. Sure. We talk about Joseph McCarthy, who was, you know, the famous uh, red-baiting anti-communist senator uh, from uh, Wisconsin, uh, who in the early 1950s just promulgated lie after lie after lie, and canard after canard, and just uh, really played upon the public's fears. Uh, of communism. And we got this term that we use in a derogatory sense called McCarthyism. But, you know, the fact of it is that McCarthy didn't originate those tactics. And when he was censured by the uh, United States Senate and eventually uh, left, you know, politics, he, the phenomenon continued after him, even as it was named after him. So the problem is not so much Donald Trump it's the machinery that Donald Trump was able to take advantage of. Uh, and irrespective of his fortunes, you know, there are lots of people. I was talking to someone who was a Republican uh, political figure uh, earlier this week. And, you know, he said that he really was very skeptical about Donald Trump's chances of winning the nomination again this year, uh, rather next year. But um, 
you know, we don't know. You know, we don't know what that will turn out to be. Uh, but even if he doesn't, that machinery is still in place and it's still incredibly dangerous, particularly in the aftermath of the 2020 election, where you saw state legislatures stripping their secretaries of state of power and authority to run their elections and placing them in the hands of partisan legislatures, which is an enormously dangerous development. Are you uh, at all heartened by the midterm elections in which these, you know, many election-denying potential secretaries of state and other others like that were defeated? Yeah, I think that's a good sign, you know, and that's an unquestionably good sign. It suggests that Americans kind of do care about the electoral process and having it run honestly. I think when people are roused to a particular level of concern, we do. Because we saw what happened on January 6th, it was easy to say, oh, hey, the scale of this danger is terrible. Now, I think that also because we don't have the authoritarian history that many like nations in Europe might have, we didn't really have the reflexes uh, in many senses to recognize just how significant a threat had emerged in 2016. And so people were kind of like, oh, I remember the conversations where people were going like, oh, Trump is eccentric and he's idiosyncratic and, you know, all these kinds of terms that really minimize. He's different. We needed something different, they would say. Exactly. He's an outsider. He's like, you know, all those things, right. Um, as opposed to saying anything that would convey actual jeopardy or peril. Right, like he acts like an autocrat or someone who wants to be one. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And so I think if you have something like that happen, and then you see what that could be and how January 6th could have turned so much worse than it did, that may give people a sense that, oh, you know, two years later, we really can't abide by this. But I'm still not comfortable. (laughs) I will tell you, I'm still just not comfortable um, with the state of affairs. So even if, I mean, let's say Trump is, you know, is the nominee or, you know, either isn't the nominee or is the nominee and is defeated in November and so doesn't become president, to what extent would that make a difference? I mean, let's say, you know, Biden gets another term. You know, he has, I guess, whether you like his policies or like him or think he's too old or whatever, You, I think we can agree that he's sort of steadied the ship of democracy. Sure. So, sure. you know, is it really about whether Trump gets elected again? Well, I think it's about less about that than it is about us dealing with the anxieties that have emerged around the changing demography of the nation. Um, I think that ties together the resentment of immigrants and the move that we've seen to make it more difficult for people to vote, you know, particularly the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and in addition to that, some very significant concerns that people have about the economy and globalism and the way that, uh, you know, the international uh, you know, system of capitalism doesn't really work for lots of people yeah. uh, in this country and beyond. Uh, and so we have a difficult time discussing that 
without veering into demagogic appeals, uh, contempt for people uh, on you know the basis of their ethnicity or their religion, or uh, saying that this particular group is responsible for the declining fortunes, uh, you know, as opposed to saying that we have a system that fundamentally doesn't work uh, for most or many people right now. Right. So how can, let's say journalists are at their best. Let's say they all went to the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism <laughs> and they are ideal journalists functioning in the world. What can they do to help address the issues we're talking about? So I think there are a lot of different things. One is that uh, on the issue, if we go back to the issue we talked about with trust, you know, we have a long and complicated history in this country, and particularly in the history of the free press in this country, and we haven't always warranted the level of trust that we've received, quite honestly. And I think that we have to be mindful of how we approach stories, of how we cover stories. We now treat politics like sports. Well, politics is not sports. You know, it, it's okay uh, for me as a lifelong New Yorker, well, I should say as a native New Yorker, it's okay for me to have uh, absolute contempt for the Boston Red Sox. It is not okay for me to have absolute contempt for Boston or the residents of Boston, right. you know, or for that matter, any other place uh, where there are people who are equally bound by this compact of citizenship mm -hmm. that we're all talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's one of the things. The other thing on the level of trust is that, you know, I think about this as someone who has a background also in social science. You know, I've for a long time, especially in the digital context, thought that we needed to adopt, you know, what people in the hard sciences and still people in the social sciences have done forever, which is to show your work. I think that every significant piece of journalism and certainly every piece of investigative journalism should be accompanied by a link that says how we reported this story. Mm -hmm. You know, I received a tip or I received uh, this set of documents, which led me to file this records request and in turn call the former secretary of the interior or uh, the former chair of the city council uh, or whoever it was. And then if that person who's reading was so inclined, they could follow the steps that you followed to reach the news that you published in this article or on this podcast or whatever format you were using. I think that that does something. It doesn't do everything, but it does something to make the public feel more at ease with the prospect of trusting us. So it's a kind of radical transparency. Radical transparency. And uh, some of it is even basic transparency. One of the things that I think you get a sense of, like for certainly journalists know, uh, is that very few people in the public know how reporting actually works. That's for sure. Uh, I was uh, on a flight. At this point, they all blend together. I don't remember where <laughs> I was flying. Um, but I watched She Said. Uh-huh. And so that's I the, really that's the film about the two reporters at the New York Times who broke the Harvey Weinstein story about uh, sexual misconduct and abuse. Yes. And the uh, Me Too movement. And the, the rise of the Me Too. One of the things that I liked most about that story was that there were numerous occasions where the editors told them they didn't have it. Like, we found this, we have this, we have this. And, and the editors would say, mm, you don't have it yet. It's not a story. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't run that. 
And then as a kind of twist, by the time they do have the story, the editors are ready to run it. They want to keep reporting. (laughs) They were serving as a check on the editors. Right, exactly. Uh, And so I don't think most of the public knows, you know, that, you know, for every story that you see, there are however many stories that never made it because there was an editor who said, you don't, you don't have the goods yet. Uh, or that you have to go through particular steps in order to produce information. Uh, we have to do a better job of conveying that to people. I was always amazed when I would learn that sometimes people thought that anonymous sources were, in fact, anonymous even to the reporters and and editors, <laughs> that somehow these were just nameless, faceless people who picked up the phone or something like that. When in fact, right. when in fact, although I frown on the overuse of anonymous sources, they are generally, you know, in any respectable news organization, someone who's trustworthy and vetted. And not only the reporter, but one of his or her editors knows who that person is, too. So right. it's it's just that you've given them some cover to remain to remain nameless, which, again, I think happens too much. But uh, right. but but I think that's an example of what you're talking about, that many people don't really understand these things that we take for granted. Oh, this is an opinion piece. This is a news piece. I, I don't think people really grasp that. And why should we expect them to when it's coming at you like water from a fire hose? on your phone. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I also think there's a kind of flattening, you know, so people don't really recognize. I mean, in a newspaper, there's a physical distinction between the opinion section and, you know, current news or breaking or Senate coverage or the economy or any of those things. And so you see them in a different light, whereas now they're all together. And then part of this is also the economics because the constraints, the financial constraints that you know, news organizations are operating under, they make it appealing to run more opinion stories because those are cheap. You know, you're not having to pay for travel, generally speaking. You're not having to pay for all of the things that go into a you know, deeply reported coverage. story. Right. Deeply reported story. Yeah. Someone is just saying, based upon my informed or maybe moderately informed or or maybe confidently uninformed <laughs> perspective. <laughs> I think that this, this, and this are, are what we can expect. That has a certain appeal that I think is has not served us well. Right. Often, opinion writers are preaching to the choir as well. So they're, right. they've got their constituency, and they're going to say the things that endear them to their constituency. And right. that happens a lot, too. So uh, because you are in the business of educating young journalists, I'll ask you what you think it's most important for young journalists to know about as they enter this pretty shaky world in which journalism really matters to democracy in America and democracy is threatened. What what do you Mm -hmm. want students to have in mind? What do you want them to have learned? You know, I think that you know, one of the benefits is that we have, I mean, we've gone through a lot of social tumult in, you know, the past seven, eight years. But each of those things now shows up in our application pool. You know, we have people who are applying you know, to the journalism school, not just to our journalism school, but, you know, to our peer institutions, because they really believe in the role of journalism in a democratic society. 
that they care about righting societal wrongs, about putting a floodlight on you know the dark corners. And you know that is a source of inspiration to all of us. But I think that the thing that you know we should keep in mind is the same thing that we always do. You know, facts lead. You know, we are in the business of disseminating information to the public. To be accurate, you have to be timely. Uh, and you know, we have a public trust. We have a public responsibility, and that this is as much of a calling as anything else. All of those things are crucial, and that we don't do this work for the sake of popularity. We really can't. Um, that we have no, you know, real investment at our best. We have no real investment in the outcome of any news that we gather other than creating a more informed public that is able to fulfill their democratic responsibilities. And, you know, along the way, maybe we help create some more closely knit communities because they understand each other just a little bit better. So how do you get that across to students? I mean, it's not exactly, you know, it's not a course that they take. How do you transmit that? Well, I mean, I think part of it is, I mean, like the reporting course. One of the things that's interesting is that as dean, I've had conversations with people who've graduated from Columbia Journalism School going back to, I think the earliest was class of 1957. And obviously, I talked with people who graduated last year, you know, or, or just now, just a few months ago in 2023. And lots of people who fall in various places on the spectrum in between. And the funny thing about it is that they all talk about one thing. There's one common theme, which is they all talk about their reporting course and, you know, what they learned, how it shaped, you know, the way they view the world, how they approach, you know, the subject matter. These are people who had long careers in journalism. These are people who worked in journalism and then went on to do other things. They talk about how their reporting course, their introductory reporting course, really anchored them you know, in the things that we're talking about now. Uh, and so that's the business we're in, you know, and some of it changes. You know, we're now, you know, very much on the front lines of data journalism and computational journalism. And we have a working group that will be coming forward pretty soon with some best practices around chat GPT and large language models and, and those kinds of like highly complicated technological uh, elements that intersect with reporting and journalism. But at its root, at its core, we do the thing that we've always done. Well, Dean Jelani Cobb, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with this podcast audience. And I appreciate it. I know your time is precious. So thank you very much. All right. Take care. So I really appreciated this conversation with Jelani Cobb. And the thing that stands out for me that really is clarifying for me and, and helps to soothe my sense of what's happening in journalism is his emphasis on the core element of journalism that seems to transcend all of these issues that plague us. And that is solid, factual, accurate reporting that from the very beginning of the school that he heads and right through the present, that is the thing that seems to make people feel that this is a profession or a craft that is still very valuable and that is still workable in our divided society. 
So he's certainly very thoughtful on that question. And I also very much appreciated his comparison of what happened during the Watergate era, how the press and government, I I mean, it's probably not accurate to say they worked together, but there was a kind of relationship between what the Washington Post's Woodward and Bernstein turned up and how the whole process played out ultimately with the resignation under fire of President Richard Nixon and how very different that would be today. So I'm very appreciative of Jelani Cobb's thoughtfulness and I hope you enjoyed the episode too. Coming up in two weeks is my conversation with Phil Napoli. He happens to be my colleague at Duke University and he heads the Duke University Center for Media and Democracy. He's an expert on a question that I hear about a lot, which is whether we should return to the fairness doctrine, which existed decades ago and was discontinued. And I often hear people say that that is the answer to our woes in politics and media, or at least a partial answer. Phil has some interesting thoughts on that. He's studied and written about it, and it's a compelling conversation that I hope you'll join. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.